Good morning. Morning, Kate. It's you again. It's us again. Hello. It's us again, and we're here with Nayong Filipina Foundation again and Toklas Filipina Society for the second part of the Telling Heritage Stories for uh, the Umpukan series. So last, kailan ba tayo, Tash? Last, Wednesday. Kailan ba Ayun, Wednesday. Okay, last, last Wednesday, we, we had the first part of um, the Umpukan. And we were joined by three heritage professionals, uh, Sir Boboy Costas, Cara Garilao, and Natasha Quintanar for interpreting local heritage stories. So from there, actually, I, ito yung ating second part, no, Tasha. At excited kami dito personally dahil mga colleagues natin ito from uh, the Philippine Archaeological Community. Um, actually, last week, we had a very, last Ay, last Wednesday lang pala. Oh, nga. Yes. We had a very interesting discussion with ito si Latasha. And um, maraming mga concepts and ideas that were um, initiated uh, in that talk. And we know for a fact that it would be interesting as well this morning given na uh, um, archaeology dito sa Pilipinas ay... What do, what do you think, Natasha? It's still in the budding phase. Marami pa tayong kailangang madiskubre at madiskubre. Yes. Yeah. yes. So last Wednesday, uh, just a short uh, briefer also, marami ring mga issues or concerns that were uh, put up there like, uh, ano ba yun, Tash, mga exoticizing, Exotic, local uh, history, exoticizing, um, um, property, property rights. rights. Um, issues of uh, pride of place, authenticity, even uh, romanticizing some of these uh, local stories. And it would be interesting what would be the take of um, archaeologists here in the Philippines uh, working on public archaeology. But before that, uh, we would like to welcome again Dr. Laya Bukherin to tell us more about their endeavors here at Nayam Filipina Foundation. Maraming salamat, uh, Kate, at magandang umaga uh, sa mga nag-aagahan ngayon. Uh, noong Wednesday, no, kinuwento ko kung ano ang umpukan. Ang umpukan ay multi-sectoral consultations ng Nayong Pilipino Foundation uh, to develop the three programs that we have. Yun ay ang Heritage Space Activities and Engagements. Uh, that we have uh, for the future site and elsewhere. And we also have the Knowledge Center Program Research Institute at nandito din ang collection ng Nayong Filipino Foundation, over 2,500 artifacts. And we also have the Cultural Leadership Institute. These are training programs for the Nayong Filipino Foundation uh, employees, public servants, tourism officers, and the general public. Gusto ko lang ibalita na from here on, we will welcome proposals for Umpukan Sanayon. Uh, we have, we, there are several topics we're particularly interested in. Uh, we want a proposal, for example, on the future NPF site, the potential of an urban forest na malapit sa Las Piñas Paranaque, critical habitat and ecotourism area, o yung tinatawag na Lapapacheya. We also want proposals on nurturing spaces for co-creation and civic engagement. Uh, bukod doon, sustainable tourism, uh, and then the Nayong Pilipino collection itself, we want we welcome proposals on that. 
uh, cultural rights, ancestral domain, and self-determination, and also protecting the dignity of creating uh, creative labor or, or arts and culture workers. So those are among the topics we're very interested in, and we will welcome proposals from here on. We will post an announcement uh, later. Maraming salamat, Kate and Tasha. Back to you. Thank you, Laya. So please check out uh, the Facebook page of Laya Filipino Foundation for more updates regarding those opportunities. Actually, Tash, meron din tayong guest na kasama natin dito bukod sa ating mga archaeologists. Um, we are also joined by the Philippine Federation of Deaf. Um, sila ay ating mga mag, uh, kasama dito to help us interpret para sa ating uh, Filipino deaf community. Um, you can look for their uh, Facebook page at Philippine Federation for the Deaf uh, sa Facebook eh, so you can learn more about their initiatives uh, here. Actually, okay. right now, um, we, uh, he's joined uh, by us for so that they can have the sign language um, just in case... Um, a lot of you are watching. Please look for uh, Mr. Junjun Sevilla's uh, box and just <laughs> focus on his uh, box while you're um, tuning into this program. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Sige, dahil marami pa tayong pag-uusapan, I think we're ready now, Tash, to uh, yes. go to our first speaker. So, ganun ulit, uh, we'll, we'll have our speakers and then you can post your comments and um, questions on the Facebook page of Tuklas and also Nine Philippines. So, for our first speaker, Tash. Okay, so uh, our first speaker today is Taj Vitalis. Um, he will be presenting the Manila Archeo Trails, Insights on Engaging the Public about Archaeology in an Urban Setting. Taj Vitalis is the program director of Tuklas Pilipinas, focusing on mobile lecture programs called Archeo Trails. He graduated Master of Arts in Archaeology at the University of the Philippines, Diliman. He was the former vice president of Katipunan ng Mga Archaeologists sa Pilipinas, or CAPI. So, Taj, take it away. Thank you, Nayong uh, Filipino and Tuklas Pilipinas, for inviting me to share our. Um, insights and experiences about the, um, the programs, the educational programs that we're, um, I've been handling for several years today, back in, um, it's around 2014, 2015, uh, the Manila Archer Trails. So um, right now I'll be, uh, uh, I'll be showing you some of the slides about um, what we do and how we um, commute uh, how we communicate or uh, interpret um, archaeological heritage to the audiences. So here we go. I'll just give you a whole view of it. Okay, so uh, so Manila Archer Trails is a, an educational program that's offered by the class uh, Filipinas Incorporated, and um, based on my experience in in, in handling this. Uh, this program, there's a uh, mobile lectures that we're talking about. Um, we met a lot of challenges and how we were able to go around this um, challenges in, in um, creating uh, the module or the teaching module for communicating archaeology to the audiences. Now, uh, 
Manila is one of the you know uh, well-known places in the in the Philippines. Aside from being the capital city and um, uh, a very uh, jam-packed area consisting of over more than a million uh, people, a population composed of different ethnicities, of people of different social backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, and um, a bit congested as well. Uh, Manila is also well known for its, its rich history and cultural heritage. And as you can see in this photo, this beautiful photo from um, Intramuros administration, that's a bird's eye view of Intramuros, one of the um, well-known historic places in Manila. And um, we know from, the his from our history books, most of the history books and um, historical documents that Manila has been one of the, has been the seat of colonial, um, Spanish colonial power back in the 16th century. And, um, and ever since it has been one of um, thriving capitals and not just uh, during the colonial period, but also in pre-colonial period when the Spanish arrived, we know that um, Manila is already a thriving community when the Spanish arrived in the Philippines. So we know that um, they do also have a colonial past. So aside from history, uh, we also know um, the, the the past uh, of Manila through archaeology, and uh, uh, at the since the beginning of the twentieth century, uh, there have been a lot of uh, archaeological investigations and studies in Manila. And one of those famous of this um, archaeological discoveries that were found in the city in this city is the twelfth to fifteenth century site in Santa Ana, which was actually burial site in Santa Ana, which was found underneath the church and its vicinities. And we know from this um, archeological site that Manila has been a very flourishing, um, flourishing village, flourishing um, area way before the Spanish came. So like I mentioned, this is around 12th to 15th century. So you could see, you know, there's a lot of um, burials and artifacts that uh, were found in in this uh, site. So aside from the research-driven um, archaeology, we also have um, archaeological sites that were discovered and then investigated due to the um, to the uh, developments that's happening around uh, in the city, Manila. So through um, salvage archaeological um, activities and archaeological impact assessments, they were able we were able to record. They were able to record. And investigate some of the some of the sites that have been um, exposed during um, earth moving activities, like road constructions and um, uh, building constructions. And um, some of those famous, uh, most of these uh, sites that have been um, uncovered were in Intramuros. Some also in um, Binondo and Santa Ana. No? we've been finding a lot of colonial period uh, structures and and features around uh, these areas no? from from as early as 17th century to around perhaps even 16th century. 17th century, even up to as recent as like around 19th century. And this photo is um, um, one of the salvage archeological um, uh, or archeological investigations in recently in Intramuros, wherein they, they found um, evidences of uh, sewers or sewage systems uh, 
that been uncovered during the road construction, the road rehabilitations. So as you can see, we have um, Manila is rich in archaeology, and it's you could tell that um, it's we can also we can actually easily um, share this to the people about uh, what archaeology has been doing around here in the city. And as we thought, well, now we'll be showing to you what are the challenges that we have in um, in um, in uh, delivering, presenting archaeology around Manila or in Manila. No? So uh, Manila Archaeo Trail, so it's, it's about experiencing archaeology in the city. And most of the lesson theme of Manila Archaeo Trail is about understanding its pre-colonial history. You know? So we all, we can see from all the heritage structures and we you know from the history books that uh, Manila, it has rich colonial history. And majority, most of us have that kind of idea. But what is the... How about the older Manila? What is uh, Manila like before the Spanish came? So that's one of the um, of the challenges that we we want to um, uh, overcome or to to um, to deal with when um, when we talk about um, uh, the history of Manila and um, through mobile lectures and also oh, before that mobile lectures thing. So uh, this one I want to be I, I want to show you again the photo of um, Intramuros and um, this beautiful Intramuros because this is the site of, um, of our educational program, the Archer Trails are mostly held. And of course, if we're talking about older Manila, which Saan Pabana, which uh, place Pabana would be the most appropriate would be the site itself of the original village of Manila, which is in Intramuros. So that's where we'll be, um, we, will, we were actually, um, discussing or uh, commenting archaeology of Manila. So uh, again, archaeo trails are uh, mobile lecture programs and uh, mobile, mobile lectures basically, uh, it's a learning uh, experience, more like an uh, alternative classroom learning experience. And it helps facilitate learning and engagement with the audience by letting them explore, dis discover, interpret, and of course, there's also question archaeological concepts and some historical knowledge while going through different locations. So, um, although most of us would think that it's uh, no different from the tour guiding, but we, we, we want to go beyond the tour guiding because it's not just about um, showing places and telling the stories of, uh, of specific sites. No? Uh, mobile lectures is about uh, uh, explaining archaeological concepts and um, by using the sites. So we're not just like, it's not just like a one-way, uh, it's a one-way uh, uh, discussing of uh, our sharing knowledge about, uh, ar about archaeology and, uh, and history, early history. It's about um, engaging the audience of what they think about and what they, what they discover about um, the past by letting them explore around the, the site, letting them um, experience the, the place itself, the site itself, and giving them a lot of um, exploratory exercises. So this is one of the examples that we've been, we've been doing. So um, I'm not just uh, lecturing them like this one, what you think that you're seeing right now, but we're letting them explore for themselves and discover 
some of the the facts and if there are any questions if there they do it's free it's a free discussion from students and out of their thoughts and out of their um from their uh, thoughts and insights about um the about the lessons and the the things that they've been observing that's where we also get uh, we form our discussion as well so that's how mobile lecture works it's a two-way street it's not just a one-way street so um now we, we Arca Trails is basically about it's about archaeology, it's sharing archaeology. So uh, some of the experiences of Arca Trails is going around archaeological sites for them to to see and how how archaeology is being done, and um, to see how uh, we as archaeologists understood um, what we're what we're trying to study in the archaeological sites. However some of the challenges we have, especially in Manila, in Intramuros, is how about the, what, what if we don't, we don't have any archaeological sites? So Manila is one of the examples, no? So even though we do have a lot of archaeological investigations, the sites are mostly being covered <laughs> with dirt afterwards, no? Especially that um, uh, most of these archaeological sites are being discovered through AIAs and salvage archaeologies because of the development that's going on around around the city, and we cannot leave these um, archaeological sites uh, exposed. So most of it are being covered. So basically, um, all of the archaeological sites, almost all of the archaeological sites in Manila are already being buried. So we can even um, visualize what we're trying to, to see regarding the archaeology of Manila. So one of the challenges is the lack of this visible archaeological sites that can be viewed or visited. So, um, however, there's only two that I know that um, archaeological sites around Manila that's, that, uh, that they, uh, they let, they let uh, exposed. So um, all in all, there's most of it is not actually being exposed. Now, the second challenge is communicating archaeology effectively in an urban setting. So we know that um, Manila in urban setting is a mixture of heritage structures, you know, the positive structure, heritage structures and um, modern buildings. How would you explain archaeology? How would you let them experience archaeology in a city? So one of the ways that we try to address this challenge of um, in communicating archaeology is by utilizing built heritage and heritage spaces. That, and we used it as venues in explaining archaeological concepts. Uh, so like I said earlier, uh, mobile lectures is not just like showing around and telling the story, telling stories about the story of, or the, the facts or the information about certain sites. We can also use heritage spaces and heritage, um, built heritage, heritage sites as examples in explaining certain archaeological concepts. And most of it for, for the audiences to relate on the certain archaeological concept, because some of it are sometimes pretty technical. It's even the prehistoric or um, the historical knowledges are, or ideas are, could be very historical. We try to um, give examples that is really relatable. We discuss certain lessons that are certain relatable for the audiences. And uh, we use this concept, the past is not a foreign land. So that's a um, concept of um, if we're trying to, or principle trying to to um, uh, present or to uh, engage 
with the audiences, with the with the people, you know. And past is not a foreign language means that uh, whatever we're like doing or our attitudes today might not be as different as uh, what the people in the past has been um, seeing or their viewing or their attitudes. Of it. So that's actually basically the concept of it. So I'll, I will give you some of those examples later in some of the sites. So um, like I said earlier as well, the uh, mobile lectures is about teaching archaeology or um, engaging uh, discourse in archaeology by going through different locations. So in Manila Archaeo Trails, we of course, we chose Intramuros as the, the main area, the main uh, area for, for discussion, and we chose specific lecture sites in each um, for the for this lecture. No? So the format of uh, or the flow of our module is actually um, we have the specific we have a topic, then each topic has a guiding um, lecture points and questions, and each and from uh, each of these guiding um, lecture points are actually um, in each of the locations that we that we, we designate. So we have Fort Santiago, Casa Manila National Museum are the the points of um the lecture art lecture sites that we chose in the um in the in the Arch Manila Archive Trails. Now, um, discussing about um, the pre-colonial Manila is pretty broad, and they, we're trying to avoid the danger of over um, uh, bombarding all our audiences, all of the information that we know about pre-colonial Manila, because that's one of the things that we're trying to avoid there. You know? Give them all the information. We don't want the information overload for students, because students and, uh, and audiences, because it's um, it will be too much for them. Not that it's, it's technical and it's um, some of it are pretty unfamiliar. You know? It's hard for them to remember. You know? So uh, uh, what we did is we narrow it as much as possible into a specific um, challenging question or problem. And from there, that's where we put a lot of guiding questions that could lead to answer that challenging problem. So, for example, in pre-colonial Manila, we actually narrowed it out to understanding settlements, but still um, pre-colonial settlements are still pretty broad. So we try to go further into what are the pre-colonial houses until we arrive on this specific question. Now, what does Raja Sulaiman's house might have looked like? Now, Raja Sulaiman, you know, is the last chieftain of Manila when the Spanish came. So, one of the last chieftains of, of, of Manila, no? when the Spanish came. And uh, that's what, what we try to um, find out. Uh, no? We want to, to, the audiences to find out. So um, we know that he's, uh, that's uh, Raja Suleiman is uh, the last one, the last chieftain when the Spanish arrived. But no one knows exactly what is Raja Suleiman's house might look like. Now, the, cons the, the rationale between understanding houses in, in, in pre-colonial means that house um, sometimes represent or most of times represent the mo mostly the the culture of um, of the whole community house can can sometimes represent them it's the houses are sometimes um, some sort of microcosm of the of the uh, culture of the whole community or the cultural lives of the whole community so where we begin in 
in understanding what the Raja Suleiman's house might have looked like. And from there, we try to, you know, put some guiding questions that could lead in answering this challenging problem. So, so um, where else to begin with but in the famous Fort Santiago? And I want, for those who have been Fort Santiago, I guess you already know why, um, we will begin in Fort Santiago. Now, I don't know if, um, for those who are listening right now or who are um, viewing right now, can someone tell me what's, um, what's the significance of um, Fort Santiago in understanding in our topic about Raja Suleiman? So if there's any um, for you who are answering uh, there, so, uh, okay. So Fort Santiago, for those who have been in, in this um, heritage site, is the original site of Raja Suleiman's residence or house. So before the Fort Santiago was built, it was originally the residence of Raja Suleiman. So that's, excuse me, that's where we will begin, where we began our discussions. So that, so basically the question here is about um, uh, why did Raja Suleiman at least the whole community of Manila before the Spanish came chose this particular area or this location around Manila Bay? Now that's one of the questions, Anna. And now to in, one of the experiences that we, uh, we did in asking, um, in engaging the students is asking them about this kind of relatable questions. So I remember we, uh, we asked them in one of our architectural programs, we asked some of the students now, if you're gonna choose um, a house or an apartment, what will be the categories or the, the things that you will consider in choosing um, a house or an apartment? So based on our experience, a lot of students would answer um, somewhere near groceries, somewhere near leisure places, somewhere um, near um, you know, restaurants or anywhere that could, they could eat. So basically anywhere that's near amen um, that has amenities in the vicinity. And for them, one of the good discussion points here is that for us to choose residences, to choose a place to, to settle, settle in, of course, it's a, actually we'll be, we want to settle somewhere that is accessible to all the things needed for us to survive. So that's how we, that's how we, that's how we start to discuss about the importance of the landscape in understanding why do Manila flourish during that time. And of course, we, we talked about river settlements and the strategic location of Manila between the river and the and the sea in you know in in um, in receiving um, in uh, you know in trading and in acquiring some of the some of the uh, necess um, daily necessities that they have like food, water, things like that. So that's how we we discuss about um, we discuss in Fort Santiago. No? it's about the role of the landscape in the past and in understanding the archaeology of the area. So that's, um, aside from um, digging, like most of the 
as, as would uh, know about archaeology, archaeologists also studies the landscape for them to understand why they, this certain archaeological sites exists. So that's how we do it. So um, moving on, our next area is, um, is in Casa Manila. And you might wonder, you know, what's the relationship of um, what does a, a colonial house has to do with uh, understanding the pre-colonial Manila? So remember that we're, the, the question is about um, the question is about how uh, how does uh, Raja Suleiman's house might have looked like. So this, first of all, it's, it's the same house, no? But also remember that Raja Suleiman is a chieftain, and being a chieftain means we have to be well off or wealthy for um, to uh, to gain such high status like that. So for us to um, to understand. Um, how does a high status person's house look like? We do, what we did is we use the colonial Manila, colonial houses or Bahay na Bato as an inference in discussing, in discussing the, the pre-colonial houses, pre-colonial um, chief houses or elite houses. So that's, all, that's the reason why we chose Casa Manila as an example. Or as illustrative. So what we did, this is actually where the bulk, uh, well, most of, some of the activities were also been done. No? So as you seen earlier that some of the, um, um, the students or the audiences are, are holding um, a mini booklet. That's actually the activity booklet. That's where they put their notes. And at the same time, we also put a lot of um, activity uh, um, pages there so they could actually do some exploratory activities while they're exploring around the house. So we let them go to the third floor of the house where there's a lot of, and we have them draw <laughs> the house plan <laughs> and list some of the interesting, um, some of the objects that we, they find interesting, that, that interest them. They find very notable and, and noticeable. So some of it from, from our experience is um, they notice a lot of ornate um, designs around the Casa Manila that most of the, um, they, they notice a lot of um, porcelain materials in Manila, inside Casa Manila. And uh, outside porcelain, we also, we also found a lot of, um, you know, important materials. And that's how we, now that's where this, the discussion starts, you know? It's about um, what does a elite houses may, are made of and the value of the objects. And of course, we, we, um, we cannot uh, discuss the concept of an elite house without comparing it to a non-elite house. So we also have the, an, an example of a common um, common houses such as Bahay Kubo for them to, to see the comparison between what an elite house looked like and what a common house, non-elite house looked like. So we see now the, the social differentiation in the material culture of the, of, of the Filipinos. And we use that as an inference in understanding well, how the differences of um, pre-colonial houses would be like. So that's another thing. No? So that's how we um, discuss here in, in Casa Manila. Now, lastly, we go to the National Museum of Anthropology. We don't go through all the galleries there. We went specifically to this um, gallery, the Faith, Tradition, and Place, in, uh, at around I think it's in the third floor. Yes, it's the third floor of, um, of the National Museum of Anthropology. And now, for those who are viewing, I, I guess you already 
some of you have an idea why this is the, the um, lecture area that we chose. And that's because um, Manila, the pre-colonial Manila has um, some Malay communities. Actually, Raja Sulaiman is um, uh, practicing, uh, practicing Islam when the, when the Spaniards came, no? it was being recorded. And actually some of the, some of the people Actually, the community in Manila were basically called Moros because what the Spanish, when the Spanish came, they seen some of them are practicing um, Islam. And that's why we brought them to Bangsamoro Art of the, uh, from the National Ethnographic Collection to, for them to see what, we, what is uh, you know, the material culture of, uh, of our Bangsamoro brethren or um, people from, from the South look like. To give an inference, to um, to give us an inference of uh, what we, uh, there's a people in Manila, pre-colonial pre people in Manila before the Spanish came, um, the how their houses looked like. So we let them roam around, and you know we had a few discussions, and we actually uh, list some of the um, objects that the Spanish recorded in Raja Suleiman's house, and we let them find and search around the, um, the gallery. And from them, we try to compare them and we try to see, to explain to them that um, some of the Islamic um, and cultural concepts behind the art that's going on and um, that's uh, going on around the material culture of the Bangsamoro. So um, back to the, um, back in Casa Manila, we talk about the ornate um, some of the ornate houses that could define the, what of an elite house in Colonial Manila, which is actually can also be seen in a Tawagon house in um, among the Marina, among the Maranaos, the ornate um, um, the ornate uh, pieces of the panolong which separates them from ordinary houses in in um, among the Muslim communities no? in the south. So that's some of the examples of it, and um, from then on. That's where we try to build. Now, from this um, three locations, the sites, we were actually leading them now to understanding more about what Suraj Suleiman's house might have looked like in the past. So here, so answering many questions now, to, to recap everything that we had to Fort Santiago, we, we discuss about the role of landscape and its strategic location. So what, what can we most likely find in, in Fort Santiago being near the rivers and sea, we could find, possibly find boats and some of the you know, fishing implements. And we could find a lot of them um, being, a, being a, um, a center of a strategic location for trading, you could expect to find a lot of um, trading materials inside Raja Suleiman's house and being, being a, a chieftain's house, uh, the value of uh, foreign objects is being emphasized in, in Raja Sulaiman's house, as we've seen in Casa Manila. The foreign objects and um, you know, uh, porcelain are what some of the um, valuable items that have been displayed around in Casa Manila. No? Now, to understand further what is a, um, a chieftain who's practicing Islam in uh, pre-colonial Manila looks like, um, we went to the National Museum of Anthropology and to the Bangsamoro culture. We inferred about what, how 
houses might have looked like in the past. And at the end of it, we ask the students and our audiences, audiences how the uh, how they could reconstruct Raja Sulaiman's house. So that's actually the gist of most of, of the Manila architecture is like. Now, so beyond that, we also have some other activities like you know how how can we interpret artifacts? Since we're already in the National Museum, we have them look for three specific objects and um, around the National Museum. And from these objects, how would they interpret archaeology? How would they interpret um, um, objects like that in relation to what we've been discussing about the pre-colonial Manila? So, so they, oh, we have uh, also some of those assessments for them to for us to know if the, stu the students were actually um, keen or if they really understood the, really understood the, the lessons that we've been um, sharing to them and the, the, the lessons that they, they've been discovering um, in, in, in this um, lecture sites. So, okay, that's all that I can share. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Taj, for that uh, presentation. Um, I think we, we are now ready to move on to our next speaker, uh, Tasha. Well, our next speaker is Mylene Leasing, and she'll be presenting the shifting context and relevance of archaeology. Uh, Mylene graduated International Master in Quaternary and Prehistory at the Museum National de Historie Naturelle in pa Paris, France, and a master's degree in archaeology from the University of the Philippines, Philippines. She is also a lecturer at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology from Ateneo de Manila University. As a local herself, her work in Cagayan Valley involved being in the Kalinga e Expedition Team since 2014, a consultant for cultural heritage in the Cagayan province, pro bono, and a cultural deputy for Cagayan Valley National Museum of the Philippines. Currently, she is specializing on cultural heritage management and is a PhD student at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. Hi, Mylene. Hi, Tash. Hi, Kate. Good morning, everybody. And thank you so much for inviting me here. Uh, okay, so I'm going to go straight to my presentation, then maybe we can chica later. Uh, so this, the title that I chose, uh, Shifting Context and Relevance of Archaeology, I, I chose this because of uh, the times that we are in right now. And uh, we're going to more talk about this more as I uh, towards the end of, of my presentation. But uh, first, let me tell you, and since it, this is what you were asking me to begin with, what we do in the site that we have been working at in Cali Rizal, Kalinga since 2014. Uh, and I am having technical difficulties because it's not, it's not, okay, what's going on? There we go. Okay, so uh, I have been a part of uh, the Rizal Kalinga expedition since the first season in 2014 under Dig Director uh, Toma Njiko, and this is our site, and that is our colleague Kat Manalo, uh, and it's an open site. So as you can see, uh, it's 
we're quite literally very open and we have to bring in tents for uh, shelters during the day. Uh, this is John DeVos, a paleo paleontologist, and this is the moment where he identified the first tooth that we found in 2014 as a rhino tooth. And uh, since then, so many, uh, so many objects, so many um, specimens have been coming out, have been, uh, we have been finding uh, and properly excavating uh, in the context, from the context, so many archaeological materials. And this is Kat Manalo again at that moment where she turned over what we thought might be just another rock and it shows the herbivore uh, tooth pattern. And since then, like I said, we have been finding so many things. Uh, of course, uh, this is now a rib being cleaned in the laboratory here in Manila. Uh, some years are more uh, productive than others. And we were published in May 2018 in Nature, where we talked about uh, the stone tools and uh, faunal materials, the animal bones with cut marks that were found and analyzed by uh, the specialists in our team. Um, the main challenge with prehistoric sites is that they are not self-conscious. They're not meant for public consumption. Um, we don't have temples. We don't have ceramics. There's nothing to really look at. at uh, it, they're not built to accommodate people, much less crowds, uh, unlike churches and, and uh, temple complexes that are really built for that specific purpose. They're not created to inspire awe. Uh, they are very fragile, especially a site like ours, which is out in the open. They're not conducive for visitors. They lack, uh, well, when I say aesthetic features, it's the kind that people normally who visit uh, uh, tourist sites, what they expect. But the view in Kalinga is Oh my gosh, it's so incomparable. It's beautiful. You have a 360 degree view around you and you see uh, the Cordilleras in the back and, and Sierra Madre in front. Um, yeah, but typical uh, aesthetic features, it doesn't have. Uh, very often people live or you live it on or use uh, this, these sites and most of the time it's for agriculture, which is uh, exactly what we have in Rizal, Kalinga. So uh, what we've been doing since 2014, aside from the usual archaeological activities, uh, the site uh, was no, has been known and has been rumored since the 1970s to have buried treasure. So, well, especially I, I think it's very common in the north not to talk to, for people to believe in buried treasure. And a lot of con people have taken advantage of this. Um, but they haven't really found anything. So what we do is, aside from our archaeological activities, we go to the town's people, we, we invite them for lectures, for interaction with the team, um, so that we can discuss, we can talk about these things and they can action, uh, ask questions. And there's a two-way interaction. It's not just us giving lectures. So here, and we do it to different sectors of the public. Here, um, talking to some grade schoolers, some school children. And here you'll see, this is uh, in the town uh, sports arena with the general public. Um, again, here's a smaller group. And then uh, we also, we are, our team has been, uh, has always been open to the idea of welcoming people to come and watch us work. So kids who walk to and from school drop by and ask questions and watch us and we let them do that. 
uh, we realized that this was important because in 2014, when we announced that we are opening the site to visitors, uh, within a week, some close to a thousand people came and walked three kilometers, no shade, uh, through rolling hills to come and see what we were doing and to ask questions. So I'm not the only one that does this, these lectures or interacts with the locals. Everyone in the team is asked to do so. So here you're seeing John DeVos uh, explaining uh, something about, I think it's a bone, uh, to the people who have come. Uh, a lot of them come and every year it's like this when we are there, there are times that uh, students come, their teachers bring their, 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 their classes, and uh, we allow them to watch and to ask questions. Uh, the team also has lectures beyond Rizal Kalinga when needed. So here what you're seeing is uh, Toma Njiko and I think Marian Reyes at the National Museum of Natural History uh, delivering a public lecture about Rizal Kalinga. Uh, so very important part of the team of um, we have a multi-stakeholder uh, team in Kalinga and very important is of course the participation of the National Museum so much so that when we had a press conference about our publication in uh, Nature um, it was the top brass of the National Museum who uh, were there to, to present uh, the press conference. And uh, the team was there too, with the exception of Toma, because he was uh, abroad. Um, and then it was no less than uh, Director General Jeremy Barnes of the National Museum, who introduced uh, uh, the, the, the event and um, our, our uh, publication. So I'm, what I'm going to present to you now, I'm going to show you now what kind of lecture do we give the locals when we are in Rizal Kalinga. So I'm going to go quickly through these uh, slides uh, because the point is not to show you each slide, but just to give you an idea what kind of lecture we give them. First of all, we capitalize on that word treasure that everyone seems to be enamored with. And then we deliver it in uh, their native language, which unfortunately I'm very bad at, but I can try. Uh, I do try and I know a little bit more by this time. So um, some of these slides, because of some technical issues, when I transferred them to this presentation, uh, the acknowledgements were not transferred along with it. So some of these, a lot of these uh, images I've taken from Kasaysayan and from a book from Indonesia. Uh, so I'm warning you already that I stole from the internet. So what do we ask them? We, what do we tell them? We tell them why we are there, why, uh, who we are, what we do. We show pictures of uh, the team in action, what we are doing. So nothing is secret so that there's no reason to make chismes. Who are we? We introduce each member of the group. Uh, what do we do again? Um, what we have found. So we also show people uh, who are from their communities who work with us. And then this gives us the chance to talk about archaeology, to introduce what it is, what, uh, and prehistory as well. Uh, and then we also get to talk about a very important um, topic of geology without which and without the presence of a geologist in the team, we, uh, it's not possible to do the research. And then we show them uh, the history of the site. When was it first discovered and why is it uh, very interesting to researchers. Uh, hold on. Okay, and then we show what has been found in the site, what we are finding, 
what kinds of extinct animal, we tell them what kinds of extinct animals live there, the stone tools and how the humans could have utilized and made these stone tools. And then we answer their uh, fact, their frequently asked questions. Of course, they are still allowed to ask questions in the end. And since one of the most frequently asked questions is how did the animals get there, it gives us a chance to talk about uh, glacial maximums, maxima. So like ice age and the lowering and increasing of sea levels, enabling animals to, to come in, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, the biggest question is who made these stone tools? And that uh, gives us now the chance to talk about human evolution and we, it, we tie it with the story of human evolution from elsewhere, uh, going back all the way to Africa. And then, of course, the closest human uh, uh, Homo erectus site in Sangiran in Indonesia. Uh, so, and, of course, the closest archaeological site to our site itself, um, 40 kilometers away, of course, Kalau Cave, where Dr. Mandy Mijares discovered uh, Homo luzonensis. Um, within, so ge uh, geologically, both sites are within what we call the Cagayan Valley. So when we say it's within Cagayan Valley about archaeological sites, it's not we're not talking about political boundaries. We're talking about a geological uh, locations. Okay, then we say that Rizal is unique. It's important to the study of. Uh, history and prehistory. We always emphasize that it's for all uh, Rizalenas and it can help in, uh, in improving the economy, tourism, commerce, education, and of course, sa pagsikat ng Rizal. We also give them an idea what other countries do with sites similar to theirs so that they can see how you can actually uh, make use of this or, or, or utilize it for the community. Uh, so here we are looking at sites in, in Tutavel and uh, in another part of France earlier. This is in Indonesia. And then we tell them, so what you have here in Rizal is something that is unique and incomparable and it is for the benefit of everyone for, in Rizal and it's something that is for um, many generations. And the real treasure of Rizal is its natural beauty, its archaeological heritage, and of course, its people. So that's the kind of lecture that we give to the locals. And this is a, a slide presentation that I prepared in October, uh, for October 11, 2019, when I delivered a project that I will uh, in introduce to you later. A lot of these ideas that we are implementing in cultural, in the, in the, in cultural heritage management um, our ideas that have ferment, been fermenting in my mind since I was working on my master's thesis, which was on the heritage management of Calao Peña Blanca, where Homo luzonensis was discovered. And here, while I was doing my master's thesis, I went out and interviewed people, and I took some uh, data. I, I had a questionnaire, a 40 40 uh, item questionnaire and interviewed 120 people from four barangays surrounding Kalau Cave to ask uh, what is their awareness of archaeology and prehistory, uh, what is their awareness of presentation efforts that have been done because uh, archaeology was being done there, archaeological research has been done there since the 80s or 70s, so roughly 40 years. And uh, what are their attitudes towards uh, community awareness and involvement and towards CRM? So the questionnaire was divided into these four areas. 
And in the first, uh, for the first area, you, you're seeing here the pie chart of um, the quest answers to the questions in that section. And you will see the blue area. It's that's a predominantly no, I don't know. They don't know what was there. They don't know what was being found. They didn't know. And then here you are looking at the awareness. Again, the blue area of the pie is like, uh, they're saying they don't know. They don't know about the local museums. If they went, they didn't understand. And in the third, now here is something very interesting. Uh, in the third portion, the blue now is uh, the positive response. I should have used another color in hindsight uh, towards cultural heritage management. This blue now is like, yes, I want to be involved. I'm interested. I want to know more. And then here, their attitude towards community awareness. And you can see the blue area now is so much bigger because and it, this is positive. They, they really want to be involved. They want to be counted. They want to participate in the heritage management of the archaeological site. It was also during this period that I was my eyes were open to the threats to prehistoric sites because, again, they are not really made for public consumption. And here you can see uh, Carabao logging or, or small-scale logging, uh, slash and burn agriculture, charcoal making, and, of course, very unique to Kalau, uh, where I work also with the provincial government, um, is the vandalism in caves, treasure hunting still, and then you have your... Uh, hacking of and taking of uh, stalactites and stalagmites plus using the cave for for uh, other reasons again this is uh, these are locations where people live so you can't really blame them for taking shelter in these places and the other thing that uh, I, I i discovered when i was doing my master thesis is a lot of the unpublished material or information research material we're still in typewritten form and they were uh, already uh, breaking down because many of them were in uh, onion skin. So this need to be digitized and I, yeah, so that still has to be done. And the other one was the presentation part. At that time, and I emphasize at that time, uh, the museum really needed help. Uh, the presentations were like, okay, um, let's not go there, but thankfully, with Governor Manny Mamba's efforts and attention in his new administration, uh, Cagayan has uh, put up and utilized this beautiful 100-something-year-old uh, building, the old carcel, and has relocated the provincial museum there. And it's a work in progress, and it's a very good start. And it was there that uh, Mandy Mijares was able to deliver a lecture about his uh, discovery of Homo Luzonensis and we were able to bring uh, the French ambassador to see the museum last year during our Kalinga season. Why am I bringing Cagayan up with Kalinga? Because these two sites are intertwined. Anyway, so in the context of my master's tale, I, uh, I thought that CRM in the context of archaeology might be defined as the management of archaeological resources for cultural heritage applications where management involves planning and creating strategies for uh, conservation, interpretation, communication, and sustainability. I noticed that the word management and the concept of management is not receiving a lot of attention uh, in our field. And I do believe that we need to 
focus on this more and study and implement uh, this more in our projects. Our cultural heritage applications are the initiatives and the efforts and the activities that when you carry out, render cultural heritage relevant for the current society. Uh, also, I came up with this CRM uh, cycle where you'll see here archaeological research would be the starting point for us archaeologists and it's pretty self-explanatory. You keep it going. So when you evolve stakeholders uh, in conservation, protection, etc., you foster a sense of ownership and stewardship. And by doing this, you engage the public more and this creates more value for everyone. You create knowledge that is useful uh, in other contexts other than uh, archaeology, which leads to integrated development of the community and which generates more, generates more support for our archaeological research. Now, very important here in this cycle, I think, is the participation of cultural heritage management archaeologists. Is there such a thing? I don't know. I just made that term up. Okay, but the point is, you see here, specialized training and education. Dati kasi, uh, when you're working in cultural heritage management, and I still think it, that's still the norm, it's a sideline. Everyone's focused on doing some other thing, whether you're a taphonomist, you're studying the bones, the stones, the pots, but no one was really, and, and heritage management is just a sideline. Uh, I don't I don't agree with that and I think that needs to be changed now and we need specialized training and education for archaeologists who will focus on heritage management, which is what I was doing. And uh, I think we need to push this forward, even though um, we have been ridiculed in the past and there have been people from our own field saying that, how is this archaeology? Well, here we are now, and yes, it is archaeology because it entails focus, attention. You need to focus on these things and for these things to happen. And uh, me, I make sideline, yeah, I'm there. I excavate with the team. It's the other way around. I excavate with the team uh, during the season. Uh, if they need assistance in the laboratory, I'm nakikilinis. Uh, then they do all the analysis. But for heritage, I'm the one focused on that for heritage management. I'm the one that goes four or five times a year to uh, Rizal Kalinga to talk to the local government, to talk to the people. I go to Cagayan to talk uh, to the people in the museum, to the tourism officer. Um, so you really need focused attention uh, on this subfield. And these are the principles of cultural heritage management. And these are the stakeholders that I've identified. And you can put these two in a matrix so you can see that not everyone needs to participate in all those principles. So some people will participate in specific uh, and do specific tasks. This is a horrible visual. I need a better one. Okay, so what are we, why are we doing this? Because we need to create innovative ways to foster meaningful engagement and participation of the public for the promotion of science and conservation. Now, this science and conservation, very important. The message that we deliver should be based on science uh, and not from uh, people's opinions, unfounded opinions, or, or, or something that they've pulled out of God knows where. Uh, we need to use the facts, and we have, because archaeologists have generated so much awesome uh, results from their research for decades, we have so much, uh, we have so much uh, facts that we need to share 
uh, we just really need to figure out how to share it better and make it uh, meaningful to the audience. By engaging the participation of the public in science and the practice of archaeology, we're looking at a multiplier effect and increased relevance and importance uh, and acknowledgement of science and scientific work. So there's nowhere to go, but it's better, but, but up uh, in terms of archaeologists, because then we will be generating broader support from a broader audience that will lead to sustainability or so we hope of course. Um, now outside of uh, outside of this, outside of Kalinga, one of the experiments that we've done, uh, this was in 2016 with COSOS Inc uh, of Parites Quisha. We posed the question like, what if we took a very uh, esoteric uh, topic like human evolution coming from a place that no one, a lot of people don't really know about, which is Georgia. And what if we came up with an exhibit about it and see how we could deliver this message, this story, and see how people would get interested. So this is still like, you know, you, you look at the broader context now of Kalinga um, and we're, we're going outside of it. So this is the, the, uh, Traveling Museum, which I put up in 2015, and this is the first Humans of Africa exhibit that uh, we created and we brought in uh, the chief, um, the primary investigator, as well as the director general of the Georgia National Museum, who is also one of my mentors, uh, David Lorkipanitsa. Here you see him with the Georgian ambassador, the Georgian honorary consul, three presidents of three universities, my husband. Um, Gemma Cruz Araneta, and then Vice Mayor uh, Joy Belmonte when we opened uh, the exhibit in Ateneo. So you have Father Jet, Villarin from Ateneo, uh, Vincent Fabella of uh, JRU, and uh, Fred Pasquale of uh, UP then. Uh, so here is our opening in La Salle where you're looking at Ramon del Rosario cutting the ribbon with the Czech ambassador Yaroslav Olsa. Then, and we did this in seven universities and you have Senator Sonny Angara here uh, tweeting about our exhibit when he came to speak and visited it. And then here in ASP for the very first time you have then Chancellor Mike Tan and then President Fred Pasquale cutting the ribbon of our exhibit when we brought it to ASP. Of course, here with Mandy Amiharis, and here is Marites Quisha of COSOS. Um, yeah, so we also have Fred Borromeo, uh, Honorary Consul of Ethiopia, and then here you have Lito uh, Asenero, Honorary Consul of Georgia. So we're involving uh, a lot of other sectors beyond archaeology and beyond the academe, as you will see uh, later. Okay, what's happening? Yeah, so here are some comments. Okay, this is the the exhibit itself, we brought this to seven universities and not just any university, but seven of the biggest universities in the capital city of Manila. And it, we, we did it for a whole year. We started in February and we ended, started February in Ateneo. We ended in, Jan, in December 20 something in National University. Here again, in University of Santo Tomas, you're seeing uh, uh, the ambassador of Spain 
And this is Kat Manalo delivered in, in our exhibit. We didn't just let the exhibit sit there. We had a TV, of course. But we also had lectures within the month that it was there. We had other activities. This is Kat Manalo lecturing about human evolution. And we never had an audience smaller than 200. And I lectured about uh, Dimanisi, Georgia, and the 1.8 million year old uh, human fossils and animal fossils and stone tools there. But what is interesting is these kids would sit here for an hour and a half, which is uh, stretching their attention span, but they would stay on after even longer a lot of time to ask questions and we'd stay longer to answer questions. It was also an opportunity for us to introduce Mandy, who we knew at that time, 2016, three years before uh, his uh, article identifying finally Homo luzonensis as a new species. Uh, we got him, to in we introduced him to the academe and here he is in his alma mater, um, uh, UST. You have again another member of the from um, someone from the diplomatic corps, uh, consular corps, Carlo Buenaflor, consul of Spain, with the ambassador. This is in Ateneo. You are looking at uh, early high school students, grade school student. Um, this was people coming to see the exhibit. Exhibit here. You have a homeschooled student coming in with his parents, and then uh, so we involved other. Uh, people within our field of archaeology. You have Tuklas Pilipinas bringing the, um, the uh, sandbox archaeology, which we did, and it became the thing, you know, it was agawan. People were fighting over slots. Initially, we just wanted to do 40 slots. We would reach up to 120. And Tuklas was so wonderful. They found ways. And then here we have lect our lecturers. And this is Toma Njiko. And this is why we, it has something to do still with, uh, this is within the framework of Talinga, because this is, uh, aside from, of course, talking about human evolution and the fauna and all of that, this is our uh, dig director here talking about human evolution. Then we also have Christine Hertler, who is a biologist uh, lecturer within that framework. And I just put this uh, picture in because everyone here looks so cute. Now, after the exhibit, we brought we just, we brought this uh, the everything that we put on exhibit and then some to schools who were inviting us. We were being inviting, take no, invited. Take note, we were not writing schools to go there. Schools up to now are inviting us uh, to lecture about human evolution. This is a, these are college kids now. Uh, and even business groups. Uh, these are, this is the Rotary Club of Manila, the oldest Rotary Club in, in Asia. And they invited us also to talk about human evolution. And then this is where I, Boboy, I think this is where we met uh, for the first time in person. Uh, Professor uh, Stephen Acabado and I were the speakers at the um, at the uh, gathering of uh, UCLA alumni in Manila, where their chancellor came, uh, and he tweeted this message. So going back to Rizal Kalinga, we developed this uh, exhibit for the town about the things that we were finding. And uh, we, we did our best to make it as professional as possible. I had the graphic artist to make all of the uh, merchandise materials. And then we had uh, the National Museum making uh, the scientific casts of the things that we exhibited. So this is the first time that they had us uh, 
an exhibit in that town. Now, we also engage with media, as you can see here on national television, um, Kim Atienza came and reported about our exhibit. But so that was aired on national TV, but also take a look at the number of views later on uh, in YouTube. And then uh, when you're in Kalinga, we also engage with local uh, media here in the woke up like this because I really woke up like that. Look, uh, this is an early morning talk show on radio. And uh, sometimes when we are not there, local media also comes and interviews the LGU. So you really need to brief. Your LGU has to be up to speed with you on what you know and the facts that you know so that they can give the interviews themselves. And we do that too. We, we brief and we train local people, especially local government people. Now, this is the unthinkable um, glossy magazines interested in what we're doing. Uh, yeah, 71,000 like that. Uh, here in this picture, you have the Delomlis, uh, discoverers of Homo Antecessor, and uh, um, Michelle Brunet, discoverer of Sahelanthropus Chidensis. And if you look in the back, there was Don Johansson being interviewed. Um, he's the discoverer of Lucy. Now, more importantly, we were also able to bring the content of that exhibit, Human Evolution in the Philippines, to another country, uh, which is Indonesia, uh, and we were able, but in a different, uh, in a slightly different format, again, with the same cast of characters, uh, the Georgian ambassador and David Lord Kipanitse. But now here with us, you have a very high level government official, uh, a deputy director of their uh, Ministry of Culture. And of course, Harry Widianto, who was, who was one of my uh, professors in, in France and also now a very high ranking uh, government uh, uh, official in their Ministry of Culture and Education. So uh, all these things allows us to tackle this question, why should we be talking about prehistory and why is it relevant to us now? Uh, number one, because it's our common heritage as well as the heritage of the people living in that archaeological site. But most importantly, it helps us understand uh, it, or provide an understanding uh, of ourselves as humans and what it means to be one. And what does it mean to be human? That means that you're not just there to engage with them because you need something. So our team in Kalinga and in, uh, even in Peña Blanca, we go and we engage with the locals outside of archaeology. Like, for example, when there is a natural disaster, uh, we do our best to, to engage and to, to be one with them by sending relief goods, distributing relief goods. And uh, the la latest project that I had, uh, well, this one, I, I got a grant personally, and it's, uh, although it's not from within uh, uh, our team in Kalinga, it's still within that framework. We have always believed that since we are doing work in Kalinga, it would be nice for them to have a public library. Since they are so curious, they are so interested, so they should have a means of obtaining information. So in 20, uh, 2018, I was able to get a grant from the Gerda Henkel Foundation, 100,000 euros to put up a public library for them, which we did and we completed in October 11. We were able to move our Rhino of Rizal exhibit there because that uh, exhibit that you, I showed you earlier, that was wrecked by Lawin. So uh, now we have a permanent exhibit there. Uh, and we were able to give 18 computers 
all internet capable. So you have this town in the middle of nowhere. It was called Liwan when I was growing up in Cagayan because it means outside. And now they have a library that's internet able. And this is our guest of honor on the day that I delivered the library on October 11, 2019, Governor Ferdinand Tuban of Kalinga here with Alfred Pavlik uh, representing the Gerda Henkel Foundation. All the books are brand new. Everything's brand new. Um, computers, uh, all furniture, air cons, they have their library cards and the first people to sign up and who were in tears um, because they were so happy were of course the teachers, the public school teachers. And here are your kids coming in to make use of the library. These, these pictures bring me to tears. And look at this, uh, they now have this place where they can come and get information as well as look at this. Um, kid is on the internet without his slippers on, but hey, he's got a computer to himself and there are a few of them. So this is our uh, last project. Now, before lockdown, we were also able to bring in another very important, well, everyone's important, but uh, a group of stakeholders are the scientists, the archeologists that do research. And thanks to the Homo Luzonensis Conference uh, in Cagayan, we were able to bring all the particip foreign participants to our site in Rizal, Kalinga. Uh, and they were able to visit as well uh, the the library or the ecotourism center. So again, as you can see, we really do our best to involve as many stakeholders as possible. And we believe that this is the way to make our management of the site successful. Here, uh, you're looking at uh, Director General Barnes of uh, the National Museum and French ambassador, uh, the previous French ambassador visiting our site. And here I am with the, the, uh, the second in command of the Czech Republic, um, uh, embassy and they are donating some books for the library. Um, okay, what am I showing? This is uh, the training of the librarians by professional li licensed librarians from Manila. And this is uh, now new mayor of Rizal Kalinga, Carl Baak. When I was turning over um, before the opening the, the library to him and explaining to him that um, this is a project that we got and uh, the funding was from us, from, from Gerda Henkel Foundation, with no politics involved. And uh, that is now what is known as the Rizal Kalinga uh, Ecotourism Center, which, uh, in which you will find the public library, the, the Rhino of Rizal uh, exhibit, the community hall for gatherings, and it also becomes a tourism hub. Well, now, eventually. So again, um, in working on that same philosophy of uh, involving as many stakeholders as possible. Uh, here, prior to the COVID lockdown, uh, I went and we were meeting, here I'm meeting with the uh, Cagayan State University CEO uh, because he was interested in what we were doing. Uh, of course, we've already started working uh, with uh, Governor Mani Mamba and his people in Cagayan Valley and uh, in Cagayan province uh, with the National Museum personnel assigned there. Uh, here, uh, right before COVID hit uh, with F Governor Ferdinand Tuban of Kalinga and his tourism officer, provincial tourism officer, Lorraine. And then like a few days before lockdown, um, Secretary Berna Romulo Puyat actually called me in for a meeting with the Department of Tourism uh, 
OIC uh, regional head then to discuss uh, what to do uh, in that area in terms of uh, heritage, cultural heritage management of these sites. Uh, this is these pictures are like right before uh, the lockdown. So uh, we really need to involve as many people as as we uh, need to, because uh, when you're doing heritage management, you, you're going to have to answer so many questions. Primarily, what are your resources? You have to assess what are resources available to you. How are you going to get access to these resources? Who are going to be the implementers? Uh, what is your feedback mechanism? How do you know you're doing the right thing? How, what are the metrics you're employing to, to measure and evaluate if you are do, indeed doing the right thing? And uh, do you have short, medium, and long-term plans? And all of this, you need to design a system that will create value and relevance for the prehistoric heritage that will be of interest to the general public. And this should, should encompass what I have mentioned earlier, the principles of uh, heritage management. Um, most importantly, the involvement engage, and engagement of all stakeholder groups to hopefully achieve this elusive uh, sustainability. And uh, this is our all female members of the team uh, leaving Rizal Kalinga site on our last season in 2019. We don't know when we were, were going to be back and this was taken by Randy. Uh, there are no males here because they're in the other car. Uh, we don't know when we are going to be back. We are now in the middle of a pandemic and it's probably a good time to reflect on what to do next. And I leave you with my favorite slide from 11 years ago that I stole from the internet. And uh, I think this is a, an opportunity, though it's a crisis. It's a crisis for a lot of people. People have lost lives, people have lost uh, loved ones and people are losing jobs. Um, but uh, I don't think, we're, we're not in the normal now and it doesn't look like we're going to be going back to any normal as we have known it. Just ask anyone who was traveling before 9-11, things do not go back to normal. And besides, ask yourselves, was normal even that great? Anyway, so let us all take this opportunity to reassess where we're at and uh, where we want to go and how to do things so that we become relevant to those whom we serve. Thank you. Hello, we're back. Thank you so much, Mylene, for that comprehensive talk. And I think we can, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, questions or reactions from uh, our audience kasi ang dami nilang uh, information ni Taj and ni Mylene. But I think we can move on, Taj, to, the, to our next speaker from Kalinga to Palawan. Yeah, so we're now moving on to Lionel De Castro with her um, presentation entitled Creating Heritage Narratives, Experiences from El Nido. So Lionel is an archaeologist based in the Philippines. Her interests lie in creating avenues to make heritage learning more accessible to the youth, especially those coming from the communities closest to archaeological sites she has worked in. Her National Geographic Young Explorer Project, the Dewil Valley Community Museum and Ecotourism Plan, is an attempt to find ways to bring archaeology closer to the community, promote heritage conservation, and hone her skills in science communication. She also heads the Handy Project, 
a cultural heritage cultural heritage education program for the Save the Ifugao Terraces movement or Sitmo based in Kiangan Ifugao. So hi Yanel. Thanks for hi. being here. Hi. So I'm Ellie. I'll be doing some storytelling. In 2004, the Palawan Island Paleo History Research Project was born in the Diwa Valley in El Nido, Palawan, after a few years of seed excavations by the National Museum. It was initially a short-term stint. As the story goes, they said, try lang natin a few years, then let's move down south. But year after year, the project directors decided to come back for one more season. Every year, one more season until they realized, okay, we're in this for the long haul. And so instead of moving around the island of Palawan, looking for bits of prehistory, the project got rooted in the Diwal Valley. Year after year, through the slow process of careful excavations and detailed analysis, there was just more archeological information coming out. The digs at Ile, the base camp, and the most accessible limestone tower in the valley have revealed presence of tiger and two species of deer that are now not found anywhere on the island, human occupation for over 10,000 years, a 9,000-year-old cremation cemetery, a shell midden spanning a few thousand years, and a Spanish period cemetery of over 100 burials. Not to mention, all other limestone towers in the landscape are archaeological sites as well. These finds led to an increasing number of participants in the project and an ever-growing list of research questions. When I first joined the project in 2015 as a graduate student, I brought with me question own. I was interested in finding out what the local community thought about the hundred or so burials that were excavated in Ile, how they thought these human remains should be stored or displayed, where they should be kept, and what we should do with them. In those conversations, what became clear to me was that while our local community knew about the excavations, they did not know much about the archaeology. And as most of the adults were recent migrants, they did not consider the archaeology as their own. This was the starting point of the work that I have been involved in for the past five years. I became interested in the archaeological project's contribution to stories of heritage in the valley. Because while the adults didn't see the stories as intrinsic to their narratives, there was something different about the children. All of the children of the Diwal Valley were born after the start of the excavation project. And later on, spoiler alert, I would learn that they saw the archeology span as part of the narratives of their lives. On my second year of joining the project in 2016, we, a team of enthusiastic individuals from varying fields, archeology, span anthropology, education, social work, community development, archiving, and even architecture, started heritage initiatives that involved three strands of public archaeology that the PIPRP had already begun. Communication, site maintenance, and tourism. In terms of site maintenance, we were building on the fact that in 2010, the local government of El Nido purchased land in front of the cave, and that in 2015, one of the project's major funders donated a building to be used in an, as an exhibit hall for the project's finds. So the work was cut out for us. With the help of the municipal government, we were able to retrofit the building to make it blend with the landscape even better and to have local workers and crafters take part in building and designing it. Inside, we have an ever-evolving exhibit, slowly improving year by year, fitting the narrative more and more. 
For tourism, the local tourism office has always been enthusiastic about sharing information about the archaeology to town's guests. For our part, and in recognition of the fact that El Nido is a booming, booming tourist town, we sat down with as many people as possible to open conversations about the tourism that they envision. The most exciting part was creating this program, this learning program for our kids, all of whom live in the valley. The program was built upon sharing more information about the project, getting the students to share about their place, and figuring out how archaeology fit into their narratives. We started off with an archaeology workshop in 2016, inviting students to come over to the site during the excavation season so that we could share information about the excavations and to find out what they wanted to see in the museum, what they thought tourists should know about the Dewell Valley, and also how the Dewell Valley looks like to them in map form. They knew a little about the archaeology and wanted to know more. They found their place beautiful and wanted to take care of it. And as shown in their maps, they saw the karsts as natural place markers and monuments, even the ones they don't often go to. Returning a few months later and jumping off from their answers to those initial questions, we came to their classrooms to talk about the excavations. For the daycare up to the third grade children, we used a storybook. Pwede bang magkukay sa Palawan, coloring sheets and stickers, and even an alphabet. A is for archaeology. For the grades four to six students, we were aided by skeleton spots and chocolate chip cookies. For the high school students, we treated the cultural mapping activity as sharing sessions as they told us about the different cuisines, places, games, feasts, events, industries, and intangible assets of the valley. We also set up a one-day display of artifacts from the excavations and asked them what the Diwa Valley means to them. Later on, we set up a museum workshop where we discussed the concept of a museum because at that time, many of them had never been to one. Aside from the one in the, in the barrio next to the Diwa Valley, the next museum would be six hours away in Puerto Princesa. We also did a pop-up museum where we asked them to bring something that represented them and their families, stage song, poetry, and story writing contests with Diwal as a theme and asked our kids what they can do to take care of the valley. We also made museum boxes and asked why they love the valley. Once the next excavation season came around, we had a geology workshop and an astro astronomy activity and another archaeology workshop, this time asking the students what they could do with the knowledge they had gained so far. All of these activities were always run as two-way conversations. As much as we tried to share the story of the artifacts and excavations, we invested our time in listening, listening to them describe the valley that they live in, telling us what it means to them. To our kids, Dewell is a place of archaeological natural heritage which has been used repeatedly by different groups who lived thousands of years before them. A place that they appreciate growing up in and that they recognize as intertwined with their and their family's existence. Unlike the older generations where many trace their identity to Ibahaya clan, their children identify themselves as homegrown to Diwil. They think of Diwil as a place to be protected and where their participation is important in its maintenance a place that they are proud of and feel responsible for, and a place that has potential for tourism. They think of Diwil as the only home they've ever known. Their answers also told us about archeology's span place in their definitions. The excavations as a seasonal occurrence, 
something they've grown to expect year after year, and ILE as a focal point for their community identity, as a recreational space that they're quite fond of, the place they go to with their friends, their literal jungle gym. And their answers also gave us an idea of how we can move forward with the work that has already started by finding ways to keep their traditions alive and to develop their landscapes for and with them. Easier said than done. This process hasn't been all rainbows and sunshine, and there are still many things left to do. Tourism for us is both a boon and a bane as it provides livelihood for tour guides, but also contributes to land speculation. Looking at the development of the tourist town just 30 minutes away, one becomes fearful of the changes that may happen in the landscape in a short span of time. Site management is a continuous process of troubleshooting, maintenance, repairs, conflict resolution, and relationship buildings with highs and lows all the time. And our programs with the kids continue expanding to other topics, geology and biology, and having a greater reach. One of our most special moments recently was a camp we did on site with our high school kids last year. Four days of exploring the valley and ending by creating a mural of their dreams and placing their handprints on the wall of the exhibit hall. Placemaking and learning intertwined. While it is a slow process, our commitment to education and sharing the story to our favorite audience is clear. Our museum curator, homegrown in Diwil, and a talented bamboo artist said it best when he said, Marami kaming turista na bisita, pero gusto na, mas gusto naming makipagpartner sa mga kabataan, sa mga eskwalahan, para makapag-facilitate kami ng mga programa. Gusto naming ituro kung ano ba ang history ng Diwil Valley, sino ba ang mga unang nakatira dito, Ano ba ang naging nila? Like everyone else, this pandemic has affected our plans. We were supposed to have a jam-packed summer of activities, repairs, upgrades, workshops, exploration walks, but we'll be saving those for another time. Right now, tourism and the other industries in the valley are unstable and our kids can't go to the site, but we will find ways to bring the learning to them and to share stories again once the time is right. I'll end the story here, hoping for better days while preparing for difficult ones. This has been the story of creating shared narratives, linking the narratives of an archaeological project that has been in the same place for two decades to the story of a place that has been in the process of becoming for thousands of years, millions if you include the geology. This is a story of all the placemaking that has been done, acknowledging the bumps while being optimistic about what lies ahead a story of creating better sense of identity and belonging and making archaeology relevant today. An archaeological heritage project and the heritage of an archaeological project. That is our story for now. Yay, thank you, Ellie. Actually, Tash, ang ganda nung present, uh, last three presentations, ay yung first three presentations din natin kasi uh, nakikita natin na iba't iba yung approaches to telling stories and to engaging uh, different types of audiences. Yes. Pero meron pa tayong huling speaker who's making rounds now in social media because of his work. <laughs> yes, okay, uh, sir, are you still there? Uh, we want to welcome Sir uh, Stephen Acabado, um, who is presenting on knowledge, co-production, and co-creation. 
Heritage Conservation and Education in Ifugao, Philippines. So he is an associate professor of anthropological archaeology at UCLA. His archaeological investigations focus on indigenous responses to colonialism, particularly in the early modern period Southeast Asia. He has active research programs in the Philippines and Taiwan, which involves active collaboration with indigenous and, des and descendant communities. He is a strong advocate of an engaged archaeology. Hello, Sir Boboy. Hi. Buenas noches de Los Angeles a todos. It's Let night me... time. <laughs> it's uh, 8.30, 8.31 here. Um, but I'm very honored and thank you to Class Filipinas and Nayong Filipino for uh, providing this venue to share our work and to highlight the role of archaeology in, in uh, story making, uh, developing yeah. narratives that involve um, collaborating with various stakeholders. So the first three talks um, focused on, sorry for screaming kids behind, uh, my kids are playing. Uh, let me look for... Okay, there you go. So um, the first three talks focused on on specific programs that involve um, working with 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 various stakeholders. And for archaeologists, it's it's very important we that we um, uh, realize and be aware of of these various uh, the, the power behind the relationships among our stakeholders. Um, so my talk today will be mostly uh, uh, focused on the new uh, research methodology that, that we're seeing among archeologists who work with, with descendant communities and indigenous populations. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll initially talk about what community archeology span is and stakeholder engagement, and then talk about briefly our work in Ifugao. And the Ifugao Archaeological Project um, is part of my, started with my dissertation work um, where Taj actually participated in 2007 and then, or maybe 2006, and uh, Ellie participated in 2014 and 2016. So we have two alumni of, of this research program. The community archaeology and stakeholder engagement make archaeological practice more meaningful especially when the results of the research empower descendant communities. Archaeology is in the position to change flawed history as a discipline that has been on the forefront of highlighting the inadequacies of some historical narratives. This archaeological model has also has the potential to shift public perceptions of the discipline, where the general public thinks of archaeology and archaeologists as esoteric entities. More importantly, it helps to decolonize archeological practice. In this short presentation, we highlight our work in Ifugao, the place where misrepresentative historical narratives have relegated Ifugao, the people, to the fringes of history. Active collaboration among community members, archeologists, and other stakeholders has resulted in a research program that can be described as participative archeology. span it also initiated the development of an indigenous archaeology in the region, as demonstrated by the Fugao Community Heritage Galleries, which also serve as the Fugao Indigenous Peoples Education Center. 
I emphasize that this is not just me. Uh, this is a collaborative work with um, Kiangan uh, descendant communities, particularly Marlon Martin. So uh, I'm also representing him in this presentation. We situate this shift in archeological archaeological practice in a regional perspective since Southeast Asian archeologists have recently shifted to active engagement with local stakeholders. This is due to the realization that involving communities often result in meaningful research outcomes. A growing number of investigations are, in, are actively seeking the involvement of communities as both contributors and as active and involved research participants. These undertakings humanize our community partners and counter the exclusivity often associated with scholarly authority. An increasing number of scholars approach research as interdisciplinary, breaking state and ethnic boundaries and engaging communities, emphasizing that we no longer work alone. In Southeast Asia, the deep archeological record and long colonial, colonial histories provide an interesting case study for cultural heritage. The class between the romanticized pre-European contact and the glorification of the colonial experience is evident in how heritage is understood by descendant communities. The rampant temple looting in Cambodia, the nebulous uh, uh, conservation programs in the Philippines and Thai-centric programs in Thailand uh, illustrate the need for a paradigm that will help develop policies consistent with the Southeast Asian experience. The need for community engagement is key to an inclusive archaeological practice. We further add that community archaeology should be key to, uh, to should should be a key component and not a consequence of archaeological investigations. Although the concept of community archaeology is complex, we understand that it requires a two-way engagement between archaeologists and various publics. This participation of the community was the first step in the launching of the Ifugao Archaeological Project. This has contributed to the community taking control of their heritage through the IPED Center. Recent archaeological findings from Ifugao uh, demystify pejorative assumptions about the origins of the Ifugao rice terraces. And as some of you are familiar, familiar with the recent Inquirer uh, article, uh, through our engagement, with local educators in developing revised history curricula, this archaeology has begun to provide a more nuanced understanding of Ifugao history and culture, because local history is not a part of the curriculum. The establishment of the IPED Center provides an alternative venue where Ifugaos can learn about their heritage and history. And as you know, uh, the, the Ifugao, the research in Ifugao and an understanding of, of the waves or of the, the peopling of the Philippines was a consequence of, of the colonial scholarship that started with the Spanish and later popularized by the American colonial government. And our, our curriculum, history curricula hasn't really changed more than when it was developed more than a hundred years ago. Um, and, and for some of you who are familiar with the St. Louis exposition where the Igorots were the centerpiece of this um, event. Uh, this was used to justify the, the, uh, the continued administration of the Philippines by the United States. During this time, it was unthinkable for most Americans that 
the United States was engaging in such uh, imperialistic endeavors when the United States was born out of protest, was born out of, of, of the fight against uh, subjugation. So they were fighting for freedom. And here they are in 1898, uh, occupying several countries that they took from the United, from, from Spain. Um, and so during this time in, in uh, uh, St. Louis, they juxtaposed the, uh, the igorots, the, the dog eating igorots with, with lowland constabulary band composed of, of, low, of Filipinos who were playing Western instruments. So in this case, they were showing that you have this highland peoples who are still needed, who, are, who need help to, to be assimilated in, in a civilized world. And then they showed a uh, local constabulary or Filipino constabulary band who were under uh, the Spanish rule. And in a sense, they were sh showing that here, you know, colonialism works. And this was also the time that uh, H. Otley Bayer applied for, for, got introduced to the Philippines. And so he applied for that job and he got it. Um, um, but Franz Boas also applied for this job and I'm just happy that he didn't get it. Otherwise, I won't be here talking about the Fugao. Um, so in this case, um, Filipino identity was, is based on, on, on the, largely on the last 100 years of scholarship. And this is because of, of the, the American uh, curriculum that was developed um, and, and introduced to the Philippines um, at the turn of the 20th century. So the assumed differences that we see today are products of colonialism and history rather than biological, environmental, or more um, uh, in other adaptive uh, differences. And the findings of our work is actually uh, doesn't lessen the value of the terraces. Rather, recognizing the short history of the terraces humanizes the Fugao, um, rather than reinforce the exoticism associated with the long history model. It also emphasizes the sophistication of the terrace builders and their ability to adapt to environmental, economic, and political pressures exerted by the Spanish conquest. They were not mere spectators on the sidelines of history. Rather, they were active participants of colonial processes with noble and resilient ways. So to de decolonize the past, descendant communities should be empowered through knowledge production involving local realities. This can be approached through the galvanization of heritage conservation through curricular change, which has the potential to facilitate engagement we, however, realize that the institutionalization of indigenous realities is a hallmark of modernity, the sort of thing that we are attempting to temper in the region. Nevertheless, the shift is needed since teachers are trained in history curricula based on flawed premises. As mentioned above, focusing our engagement on select segments of Ifugao community is important because we are aware of differential power dynamics in the region. There's no way to stop the assimilation of the Fugao to the wider Philippine political and economic realm, but we can tap the institutions provided by the new system to empower Ifugao descendant communities. Collaborating with teachers expands the reach of our advocacy. We also encourage the teachers to invest in heritage conservation because through it, they can go beyond mere pedagogical themes and learn about their past. 
In this case, Ifugao teachers can base their lesson plans on discussions with elders and fellow teachers, not regulations from the centralized Department of Education. The community museum um, that was uh, that I mentioned uh, a few slides ago was an offshoot of the Ifugao archaeological project and a brainchild of, of Mr. Of Mer Marlon Martin, the co-director of of the Fugao Archaeological Project and um, the Chief Operating Officer of, of the Save the Fugao Terraces Movement. And it is a classic example of co-production and co-creation of, 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 of knowledge. And so here are some, here's a, a photo or an image of, of the museum or local heritage museum. And uh, the community museum described here has become the venue to contest dominant but pejorative historical narratives. Although our scholars write that collaborative museums process, uh, processes illustrate negotiations of new languages through which the colonized have been formed, has, has, have been forced to speak, our Ifugao experience suggests that community members decided that they would be the interlocutors of their own heritage. This is the community's response to the designation of the community or of the Fugao Rice Terraces as UNESCO World Heritage Sites, which superficially appears to be a, to be a great advantage for Fugao local communities. However, uh, the nomination process and the subsequent recognition of and recognition ignored local communities. Uh, we were correct, or Waterton Smith were correct to point out that communities of, of expertise have been placed in a position that regulates and assesses the relative worth of other communities of interest, both in terms of their aspirations and their identities. Other communities, therefore, have endured a less than equal footing from which to make claims about their past, their heritage, and their self-image. So a shorter history of the terraces did not diminish their value as a UNESCO World Heritage site. Rather, it reinforces the awareness of the technological and cultural sophistication of the people who constructed the terraces. This sophistication allowed the Fugao to rapidly modify their landscape to fill valley after valley with terrace rice fields within 200 years. It is now time to lay the antiquity debates to rest. They only serve to exoticize highland peoples. Moreover, the differences that we see today between highland inhabitants and lowland populations are products of history and colonialism. It is more important for us to acknowledge that we are in danger of losing these historical and cultural monuments and that we have a responsibility to take part in preservation or preser preserving our heritage. Most importantly, we have to acknowledge the value of community involvement in our scholarly research and conservation and development programs. And um, our work in Ifugao uh, uh, is detailed in this fresh off the press uh, article that came out this morning. So if any one of you is interested in reading about um, our engagement work in, the, in, in Ifugao, uh, please shoot me an email and then I'll, I'll I'll share a copy of these uh, of this article. Hello, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Kamusta naman, Tasha? Thank you, Sir Boboy, for that uh, 
beautiful presentation also. Ayan, umikot tayo ng Philippines. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your um, presentations. Um, we have a few... Um, yeah, so um, we have questions ready for you. Um, for Mylene, how do you translate the concepts of archaeology, prehistory, and geology to the local community? Uh, well, you have to, first of all, you need to get uh, the facts from the archaeologists themselves and the geologists themselves. And then you figure out a way to translate it to, the lang to a language that is understandable to the community. And sometimes you have to use concepts that uh, they can relate to. Um, you need to use words. You need to illustrate. Sometimes you need to make a demo. Uh, you don't just limit yourself to, to verbal communication. You need visuals. You need to act it out. Uh, like there was one, one example. Um, when we were trying to illustrate just how far back in time is 709,000 year, 709, years. So we got kids and we said, of course, using what you have to always use what they know, what is relevant to them. So we took two kids and we said, okay, you're point zero, and we put a kid next to him, and we said that okay, you're the point where Jesus Christ uh, existed uh, on on Earth. And then, of course, it, this is no longer scientific, right? So we're just showing the distances, and then this is where we're at now. So we put another kid. And then we said, okay, 709,000, uh, let, let me ask for a cell phone. Why? We're going to call him. He's probably into Gegarao. That's how far 709,000 is. So, you know, you have to be creative in, 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 in illustrating and conveying the message that you want to, to uh, convey for them to absorb. But it always has to be in a language, or whatever language that may be, visual, um, action, it always has to be translated to a language that they understand, that they can relate to. Okay. So, for that. Thanks. Thank Pero, you. Sa second, sa second natin na question, pwedeng maganda siguro sumagot dito si, um, I think si Linnell and si Sir Boboy. Um, telling the heritage story is nice and important, but how do you make it sustainable so that people from different social class can appreciate heritage? Because I, I notice also that in some of your works, there are different type of audience in the communities that you work uh, with. So how do we really make it more sustainable? Linnell? Yeah, so for us, I think if they consider it as their story, then they will pass that story on. Um, it will have its own life. Nababawasan yung burden, I guess, or yung role ng archaeologist. Because uh, a story that is a part of your life, ay ikakwento mo sa iba. Tama. Kumbaga, if they consider, kumbaga may ownership kasi dun sa narrative na meron sa kanila. What about yep. sa case nila, Sir Boboy, sa Yangan? So, there are two, uh, two components to the question. First is sustainability. So, heritage conservation is a, uh, it's a difficult job. 
there a, a thin line separates spectacle and 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 cultural preservation. So most of of of, of the programs that you see um, in the Philippines, for example, uh, appear to be very uh, spectacular, like performance even. Um, but it has its its advantages because without bringing the money, the the, the um, the income from from tourists, then you wouldn't be able to support uh, the maintenance of these kinds of, of performances, rituals, and in, in the case of Ifugao, all rice-related rituals. So for sustainability, we have to think about income. So without a, a really sustainable or, or, or main, maintained um, uh, uh, income flow for, for heritage communities, uh, all of these programs will have a shelf life of two years, or very short shelf life. Because in the end, if you have nothing to feed your family, I don't need my heritage. I can't eat my heritage. So the other question is about inclusivity. How do we develop inclusive programs? Um, because in, at least in Ifugao, um, you have, you have various Ifugao communities. You have different Ifugao uh, communities that tend to have, uh, uh, to be distinct from each other. So in, when, I, when I talk about my work in Ifugao, people say that you're only working in, in Kiangan, um, but there are other aspects to that work. Um, and, and for us archeologists, we have to be aware of, of our, our role in, in the power relationships in, in these communities. Um, I know all of you are aware of, of local, the power of the local government, uh, the power of barangay captains, and, and we contribute to, to those kinds of, of power dynamics. So for us to develop a more inclusive um, uh, 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 program, then we have to make a stand. We have to choose people that we work with, but at the same time, we don't have, we cannot antagonize other peoples. So we have to be open to, to or to be transparent to to all uh, concerned stakeholders. Thank you, Sir Bobo, um, for that. Hi, Kate. Can I say something yeah. about uh, unsustainability? Thank you, yeah. Boboy. Every time you speak, I learn something. Uh, okay, about sustainability, I I think that uh, one thing that will, I can't even say guarantee that, but will ensure a longer period of sustainability. And something that I mentioned earlier that it's not being uh, given enough attention to is management. Um, you have to have a plan, you have to, you have to manage that plan, and you have to manage uh, you know, the strategies and the goals, you have to manage people. And then you have to have a means of uh, measuring your success or your or otherwise. And you, you have to have a means of, of uh, checking yourselves if what you're doing is, is correct or, or it's effective. I don't think, I, I have to disagree with Linnell, I'm sorry. I don't think anything is going to take a life on its own. Um, these things happen, will happen, and if sustainability will happen, it's because it's in the plan and it has to be planned and managed. Uh, these things that you're seeing on TV now, these are not 
uh, spontaneous things. These are planned. And there are people planning these things. Uh, so I don't think that uh, heritage management or, or, or inclusivity and all these things that are involving the community, nothing is going to happen on its own just because you said that you involve them, that you include them. Um, most probably, these are just going to die a natural death unless you have a plan and unless you manage that plan. Thank you. Thank you for that, Miley. Actually, go, sir. So one of the things that we mentioned in that uh, new publication is the existence of community museums. Community museums tend to be a counterpoint to national museums, nationalized museums, um, because of course, national museums have their own ideology. And in the case of the Philippines is to, to highlight the Filipino culture, but it, Community museums highlight their own culture. Uh, but in Ifugao, um, community museums that we see are private museums that uh, uh, cater to tourists. I haven't met an Ifugao who's been to the Banawe Museum without a tourist behind them. Uh, mm. In my more than almost 20 years working in Ifugao. Um, so, uh, inclusivity would have to be uh, developed. So you have to think about programs that will, that will cater to the local population and then also the sustainability of, it, of, 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 these, these, um, of these, these programs. So I, I think a case in, in mind, and Linnell is familiar with this, is the, the, the Ifugao Heritage Galleries that they in, included um, a, a a business side to it, um, the the textile production. So on the one hand, you're you're continuing to to provide a venue for for younger generation Ifugaos to learn about weaving, and and on the other hand, you're opening a market, an income stream for the people. And so if you have that uh, steady income coming in. Then you can focus on other aspects of your 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 heritage programs. Yeah, I think it also goes because on the issue of as as archaeologists, meron din kasi tayong different roles in the whole heritage management or uh, public archaeology stream. I think uh, don't din kailangan maging clear kasi with the, amongst our ranks meron ding mga tao that focuses on education like i remember this in um Linnell's uh, defense thesis defense kasi sinasabi rin niya na marami tayong mga certain um components where we can uh we can contribute as archaeologists so some prefer to be storytellers some pre uh, prefer to be facilitators some uh prefer that um they they, they really get into the the the, the sustainability and the heritage tourism um, aspect. And I think uh, dahil medyo konti lang tayo na gumagawa ng ganito sa Pilipinas ngayon, this is the most perfect op and opportune time to really collaborate with a lot of people it's like what uh, Mylene is also doing in Kalinga and Boboy, even um, the work also in um, Ile and also it, with Tuklas, kahit sa Tuklas, hirap to really get um, communications across. And with that, actually, may tanong dito eh, because we're talking about artifacts, and these are the foundations of our stories. 
So ang tanong dito, I think Taj can really answer this. Who technically owns these artifacts? I noticed that artifacts from archaeological sites usually end up in laboratories in Metro Manila. And under what circumstances are they returned or entrusted to the community? Oh, okay. Um, I really do apologize for for um, not for reserving my answer that because I'm currently um, representing here as a class and not as a as an NM person for the moment, and I will be clear for that. So, um, whatever my views are, uh, will not represent the views of <laughs> of the National Museum. So. Um, I'll give perhaps some um, opinions. So, who owns artifacts? Well, it's it's under, for in my own uh, personal opinion, not as a as an NM personnel. I'm um. Uh, it's in the law that says that. Um, but it's in the law. It's not an opinion. It's in the law that yeah, the artifacts are. Yeah. Uh, anything that's uh, that's found in in, in archaeological sites yeah. are uh, belong to to the state. So let's be clear on that. It belongs to the state. And the National Museum is uh, mandated to to take care, and to mm -hmm. um, they're, they're the ones who to, to, to take care of, mandated to um, preserve and uh, and to take care of the um, archaeological heritage of uh, the of the Philippines. You know? They're the they're the authority in doing that. So, um, so I guess that's the like most basic. Um, answer that I could give. But of course, there's a lot of complications in that, which um, I, I uh, actually um, don't wish to dwell too much on that because there's a, another uh, division. There's a division in the National Museum who's, uh, who can actually answer that. And, um, Kasi siguro based on na lang din sa experiences ni siguro sa Kalinga and uh, Kiangan and also in Palawan. Kasi there are community museums in your in the areas that you work with, right? So, um, kasi pag sinabi nating state, um, technically, pwede siyang national at pwede rin siyang sa local. I guess the, mm -hmm. the context of this question is really, um, dahil alam natin siyang sa state, but also local communities, since they ascribe to these artifacts, even if they are not culturally related to these materials that we find. Pero dahil nasa lugar nila, merong ganong klaseng ownership pa rin, di ba, na kahit paano uh, they subscribe to. So for example, if it belongs to the state, then it goes to the National Museum at start, di ba? Pero what are the times where, or mga sa cases nyo nga na nag-build ng community museums na hindi national museum, paano natin siya na-facilitate that um, that that local communities can also build community museums and they can house their the artifacts that uh, that are found within their areas. May I? Yes, yes, go. Yeah, okay. So um, I think the concept, the idea there for keeping the artifacts uh, with the state and specifically with the National Museum is for safekeeping. Because uh, like, for example, in our, in our context, uh, we're dealing with uh, fossils that are very, very rare, um, and and stone tools that are very rare. Uh, so uh, 
first of all, they're while it's being studied, they are with the researchers. So they they are in laboratories. They're being studied. Sometimes they're set abroad for dating. Yes, that's true. Now, um, I don't think, um, and I've I've spoken to Director Barnes about this. I don't think he has anything against repatriation of artifacts, uh, back to where they came from. Uh, but I think um, th there has to be if you are going to repatriate the actual. Uh, artifact, the actual specimen. Um, is there? Is there? Do you have uh, the? Do you have the infrastructure to receive and to protect these 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 uh, items? Do you have the expertise in your government, in your local government, uh, who know enough about uh, protecting and preserving and presenting these artifacts to to your to your um, to your communities? So uh, the best the, the the best solution to that, since uh, you know you have to admit, not everyone. I don't know if there are any uh, towns or cities that have these ca uh, capabilities. There probably are, but definitely not where we work. So the next best thing is to have a scientific cast of these items produced, and this is what we use in our in our exhibit of the rhino and the stone tools uh, in, in Kalinga. And it's the same thing also that uh, Mandy has this, uh, Dr. Mijares has on display uh, at, the, at the Cagayan Provincial Museum. It's the scientific casts of uh, Homo luzonensis. And uh, I think this is a good alternative to having the actual thing on display because uh, mm -hmm. first of all, the actual things need to be analyzed. So that's the reason why they are elsewhere. And then you need also, uh, you need for safekeeping, uh, uh, climate controlled and all of these things, kind of environment that not everyone can afford or has access to. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Mylene. Yeah, um, I think even it's, it's um, the National Museum is um, open to, um, you, you can even request for the cast. Mm -hmm or the replica from the National Museum. And um, when, if there's a budget, they can, they can provide those casts and those replicas to the also, community. Oh, because depending din siya on the classification of the, the archeological site or material, if it's declared like a cultural, a national cultural property. So it's also protected under the, the law. Yes. Yeah. Okay. See, some um, case ni uh, Boboy and I think ni Lelinel, are there um, actual artifacts from excavations that in the com that are in the community museums? Sarge, should I answer? <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm -mm. Well, yes, so it's it's an open, that's an open, it's not a secret that uh, there was a, I was asked to turn over all the materials to the National Museum officially. But, and so, so I did. So all of the national, all of the Kangan uh, materials are now with the National Museum, and that is uh, a state. That they are mandated by law to as curators of, of of Philippine heritage. So they have. Um, so we turned over the materials to the National Museum in Kangan, um, but the community wanted of the artifacts for their heritage galleries. We don't call the Fugao heritage galleries as museum because it's not, they're not doing 
research. Uh, it's it's a it's a venue for for local communities, and 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 those interested in Ifugao history and culture to learn about uh, the local history about Ifugao. So um, the there is a way for for local communities to access um, archaeologically retrieved materials, materials that have been or or archaeological work that ha has been sanctioned by the National Museum. Because there are materials that, you know, been, have been uh, obtained by looting. And I don't know if that's covered by National Museum. Uh, if uh, I'm sure it is because it's, it's an archaeological um, archaeological re retrieve materials, but uh, uh, but for those of us who are sanctioned by the National Museum, then we are obligated to turn over the materials. But local communities can initiate an MOA with with the National Museum, granted that uh, the communities have, as what Mylin mentioned, the the, uh, the infrastructure to safeguard uh, this this the collection. So there are a number of, of materials in, in the national uh, the iPad Center, um, and this is between the community and the National Museum because the community is invoking the Indigenous Peoples Rights Act. That uh, and this has to be um, uh, cleared by lawyers if National Museum really has uh, 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 precedence to the Indigenous Peoples Rights Act. Uh, that is being uh, uh, argued by the communities that they would have to be the curators. Way for, for... Yeah, thank you, sir. How about in the case of uh, uh, in Ile in Palawan? I think right now the stuff that are there are replicas or um, mm -hmm. a few things that are recent. That are not archaeological artifacts and then the big dream um, is of course <laughs> that you know we have this dream of them coming home eventually when everything is right and oh when mm -hmm. you know the systems are set up and field research station and things like that but that will take time yeah oh, kasi yun, actually yun yung follow-up question eh, kasi sabi, sa, a question for you is how can you expand this heritage action and move forward with their plans at Ile site. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. one of the things that um, we're working on right now is site protection uh, and mm -hmm. getting it like as a as a protected site with um, plants and things like that. But we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, so yeah, and the, and the it's landscape protection. So not just Ile, but uh, <laughs> other karsts and other things in the valley. Thank you. All right. Quest uh, go, Tash. Next question. Um, this is a question from Susan Alejo, Petilia uh, in um, Facebook. To all the speakers, do you believe that heritage or cultural heritage is not mere objects, as the Western world has prescribed, but rather it more of a social cultural construct? and must consider the people within the site that would really define that it is heritage. This is now the new, is this now the new meaning of heritage? Absolutely. 
stretch, ikaw. Sorry, I was looking for the question. Can you repeat that again? Sorry. Oh, here, here, here. Yeah, you believe that mean. heritage or cultural heritage is not mere objects as the Western was prescribed, but rather more... Well, absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, cultural heritage is not just material culture. It's... Um, so yes. culture it never it. was just yeah. about the objects. Oh, it's cool. It's a complex that complex whole kind what's defined um, the basic definition of culture when we were in students of anthropology, you know. It composes of not just a tangible heritage, but also intangible and also archaeological heritage. So um, food is cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Food is cultural heritage, dance is cultural heritage. Even the gestures and joking is a form of cultural heritage. So it, it encompasses everything, which is um, we sh- which it should be included as well. It should be an inclusive part of us when we're sharing. We're sharing about um, uh, preserving cultural heritage. So um, when we um, talk about um, preserving heritage, cultural heritage could be very broad, but you could also be very specific about it. Guys, I mean, we focus on archaeological heritage, so that's one of those. But archaeological heritage is just part of the bigger cultural heritage. Yeah, right. A lot, lot other, um, there's other people who are also um, advocates of preserving other aspects of cultural heritage. All right. I think this is, um, thank you, Taj. Um, I think this is a very important question, and I hope all the speakers can also answer this. On sustainability of the conservation of heritage archaeological sites, do you think that there is a gap or insufficiency of policies and laws to protect these sites? Tasha, can I go back to the last question? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, so um, heritage work, and and as the question implies, it's uh, part of decolonization, decolonizing of what we do. Um, but the irony is that the approach to ethics that underlies decolonization is a Western concept that originated with the Greeks and developed over the centuries in European Judeo-Christian philosophy. Like, like human rights, a closely allied idea. This ethical approach is focused on the individual, not the community or other social group. This can make it def- difficult to re- reconcile the ethical tenets um, in, in our heritage work with systems of thought that support strongly hierarchical social orders based on group rather than individual identity and which normally severely restrict the actions of individuals and indeed categories of people. So when we do, this is a comment on one of our, our work that um, when we think about heritage and decolonization, um, this is really a Western concept, the decolonization itself. And, and we have to look into the mirror and and this is are, are we doing this for us or for the people who owns the heritage that's it sorry for <laughs> no it's okay thank, thank you. you um with that baka pwede nyo na rin pong ituloy to the next question which was on the sustainability of the conservation of archaeological heritage sites. I mean, do you think that there is a gap or insufficiency of policies or laws to protect these sites? I don't think, uh, maybe the, the, so you have uh, several, it's constitutionally, man, constitutionally mandated rules and regulations. So uh, 
conducting research uh, is regulated by the National Museum. And I think later it will be turned over to NCCA. Uh, and so um, the gap here, I think, is really um, more on, on developing a narrative, a, a story, like what Ellie is saying, the, the story of, of, of our heritage. So if we just keep on digging and digging and we keep on excavating materials and we don't do anything about it, that's the gap. We have a lot of artifacts. Archaeology is a destructive process. If we don't have to excavate, don't excavate. Otherwise, we're pot hunters. I guess just uh, when we, we do something, it has to be, unless it's, it's salvage archaeology then, to, to mitigate the effects or the, the, the consequences of, of development projects then, Yes, we can do that. But then we need to really look at what are we doing as archaeologists? May I absolutely agree with Boboy. Uh, and I, for me, I think the laws we have enough, policies we can make as we go along, uh, heritage management is, is a process. So uh, for me, the gap is really in the implementation. It's in the lack of a plan. The, the gap is the non-existence of a plan uh, at least i can say for for my for in our context in um there is no plan there there is no management again it boils down to that word management and i think um in our field i i and from my experience and again this is just an opinion uh not enough attention has been given to management and training people in management uh so that these concepts are developed and applied to our projects or archaeological projects or heritage management projects. So I believe the gap itself is the lack of a plan. Anyone else? Ellie or Dad? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, well, actually, that's one of the things that, um, for me, I find it very uh, delightful or uh, I love about um, this kind of discourse. You know. uh, for now, perhaps um, you know the, the the thing is uh, we continue to learn about um, more about our ourselves, our communities, about um, about regarding the protections of these signs. No, the the laws and the policies maybe or is um, could have been sufficient enough for now, perhaps. But as we learn more about um, the some of the uh, uh, social cultural. Um, implications and uh, other uh, the dynamics of um of the stakeholders community in regard to this um these sites we could actually learn more and how to on um, to improve on maybe on the policies or in in the laws in protecting the sites and for me for now it's um the the policies and laws are very very um it is it's somehow sufficient and implementation is we're still developing um, more um, policies or implementation and how to implement these laws and uh, in these laws and um, we're all um, we're all in the moving forward in making this uh, a, a better um, we're all moving forward into developing a, a better way of and more efficient way of protecting all these sites so 
um, I cannot answer right now if it's really sufficient, but from what I'm seeing, uh, from what I'm seeing right now, the, the law is uh, pretty much sufficient. You know, like Maylene um, saying, Miss um, Maylene was talking about it could have been some lapses or gaps perhaps in, in the plans, but yeah, we're all learning about it. All right. Okay. Um, we would like to ask a last question <laughs> at lunchtime, na, guys. <laughs> uh, how do you envision an empowered community during the time nawala ang archaeologists or specialists sa, sa site? What are they capable of? And what happens when local communities make their own discoveries without the expert archaeologists around? Okay. Maganda, maganda. Uh, who, who wants to, Sir Boboy, you want to start? So I guess, um, our, so archaeology is not just about excavation, right? Archaeology mm -hmm. is about, it's, it's, you have other components of archaeology. Um, and so in our case, I haven't been to Ifugao, the Ifugao archaeological project hasn't been excavating since 2016 in Ifugao, but I, visit every year but we are still publishing uh, we are still working with the community uh, in terms of conservation heritage conservation so even though you're not there uh, if you have established a strong professional and 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 personal relationships with the people that you work with um, you can always uh, they will they will uh, they will lead in, in the research. So as I mentioned, uh, globally, if the Fugao Archaeological Project is cited as one of the major or one of the classic uh, examples of, of a successful indigenous archaeology uh, 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 approach. Um, and that's because we've engaged the community. It, it's not a one size fits all. It took about four years for uh, Marlon basically to trust the archaeologist. Um, so it's for us, it's, it's easy for me because uh, I've been working in Ifugao almost every year since 2007. But for some archaeologists, it's not the case. Uh, uh, so for some archaeologists, you work in one site and another site and the next and the next. So you're not, you're not able to really cultivate that long-term professional and, and personal relationships. Um, and so in this case, um, I guess the key really is community engagement. And even if you're not there, then you can uh, work with them. Um, and, and, and establishing this kind of relationship also allows you to integrate indigenous epistemologies in your work. And I think this is what I wanted to say earlier. And what's, my, what's missing in, in, in our work is to integrate uh, Philippine realities. We've been, we're still using uh, Eurocentric cultural chronology of, of uh, Paleolithic, Neolithic, Metal Age. What's that? It's not uh, the Philippine reality. Um, so I guess the 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 focus is to uh, to integrate. Uh, well, I guess more work. Again, I agree 100% uh, with Dr. Acabado. Uh, 
like now that we are not able to excavate, um, actually, this is the time of year that we are usually in Rizal Kalinda for a month. This is our excavation season. Um, but the work continues uh, with, with Rizal as well as with uh, Cagayan and Peña Blanca in the sense that um, we're just uh, we're just letting the this ECQ GCQ blow over and then we continue engaging with the communities and the local governments um, to develop more to develop further to evolve further this this uh, heritage management concepts for each area um, like for example we've already established as Bobay said now it's very important to establish a uh, relationship with the communities which we have and then of course with the LGUs which is very important and uh, the agencies of those LGUs so we for example in Cagayan um, we, we've started working with uh, the offices, the cultural offices under Governor Mamba, and in Peña Blanca, we have developed a, and because I also have known them from, from childhood, uh, a relationship with um, Mayor Taginod and Vice Mayor Taginod and uh, uh, Barangay Captain uh, Tin Taginod. And this, it's the same in, in, in Rizal, it's a new administration, so we've had to reintroduce ourselves, and this has brought uh, more than a few complications, to be honest, but uh, we're there. Uh, we're on that path of developing a relationship, a, a new relationship with the new, uh, with the new uh, government, with the new local government, and um, of course with the assistance of a very mature governor in for, uh, Governor Tuban. So yes, definitely, especially now that we are unable and we don't know when we are going to excavate again, now is the time to cultivate, develop, and uh, continue the engagement with communities and the locals. Inel? Yeah, so envisioning an empowered community, right? Even when we're not mm -hmm. on site? Yes. So. <laughs> or what about the making... Um, what happens when local communities make their own discoveries without expert archaeologists around? Because sa ile and around El Nido, very ano, relevant tong question na to. Yeah. So sa mm -hmm. so for sometimes when they find things, you know, in their backyard or something like that, because they know how to contact us, we will get a message. Na parang ah, we found this, kanya kanya. And if we're not there during that time we will be like, oh, okay, sige, you know, just keep it first and then we'll, we'll look at it when we arrive or something like that. Um, in terms of, but we have, we don't have systems yet in place na parang, you know, they can report it and then you will have a database. That will be such a dream. Um, pero in terms of envisioning an empowered community, it would be like making us, in effect, uh, disappear from yung, yung scene. Um, and to just be providers of, and you find a new role for yourself, right? Um, because, so one of the things that I like with, happening now with us is now when people are lobbying for protection for ILE or for the sites, uh, even when we're not around, now we don't have to do anything. Uh, and they will just tell us, oh, by the way, there's uh, discussion and, you know, protection of the site was involved and things like that um yeah so because other people care about the site too and that that for me is an amazing thing 
Thanks. Thanks, Ellie. Okay, so. Uh, okay. Just a follow up to what uh, Ellie said. I don't think local communities will be doing, will take our job because they won't be, uh, they won't be digging the way we do. So they ask them to participate and within two hours, if it's not for them, they won't do it. But yes, uh, they will let you know if there are uh, archeological sites discovered. Mm -hmm. I think ano din, Taj, maganda rin i-plug na sa tao ngayon, like, when they find seeming, seemingly artifacts, anong dapat nilang gawin? <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's one of the important to, to have knowledge of, ano, of the loss, actually, primarily is the loss. Um, actually, the, one of the crucial things, siguro, um, for, that would tell us that they're empowered is uh, how they value or um, how is their attitudes towards archaeological sites and... Um, and, and um, artifacts and objects. You know, if they if they value, if they see it as their part of their um, lives, part of their communities, and it which is warranted warranted of um, of protection, just like how they protect their history or how they they would protect their community. So I guess that's that would um, define them, uh, empowerment. However, um, being empowered also means they they should have um, knowledge on the loss. That uh, that it's um a bit when it comes to protecting um, archaeological sites and cultural heritage. You know? So when not just because they may nakita silang um artifacts, just because they see any, any artifact or discover any archaeological site, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to dig everything or or something. They they still have that um sort of restraint as a as a in respect to what the law is telling us. So that's how. Um, empowerment for me is um, can be sa, ano, sa, for the for the community. So and again, sorry, uh, I I I would like to add to what Taj is saying. Um, this is all just going to happen if there is management. Uh, you cannot expect the locals to just do this on their own. In our case, in in Rizal Kalinga, uh, we have provided cell phones. We have somebody on the ground living on the site, so that anybody that that uh, finds an artifact while he is plowing his field um, can report uh, that find to to our person on the ground or to the local government, uh, to the mayor, or and then um, they are asked to turn over what they find, and we will put this on display in our Rhino of Rizal exhibit. That's why we have provided drawers that will eventually be filled up with all these finds, and then we will acknowledge them properly, like this tooth was found by Mr. So-and-so. But then again, this isn't just going to happen. You need to guide. You need to be there to guide these people on what to do, and you need to follow through. And it all boils down again to management. And uh, I think that is something that, we will, that will be helpful for everyone while we are not in excavation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. That was very fruitful. And um, unfortunately, we have um, uh, overtime na tayo at mukhang lunchtime na. Um, thank you so much for um, being here. Um, I'm sure our viewers learned a lot. If anything, um, it became, because I was a speaker last Wednesday, and it became a practice for the three of us to comment on the because after this live Facebook is done, 
it's going to be saved, right? So you can just go back to that link and as speakers, if you feel like answering any of the comments or questions there, go ahead as what I did with my, uh, my co-presenters last Wednesday. We just went, actually this morning ko lang binalikan yung ibang comments and maybe you'd like to do the same so that um, these people who ask those questions can have like a transcription of those answers. <laughs> okay, Kate, up to close. Thank you. Uh, before we close, syempre tatawagin natin ulit yung mga kasama natin sa Nayang Pilipino to give us uh, a few more uh, reminders before ending. Uh, Ms. Laya? Okay, maraming salamat, Kate. Uh, magandang tanghali sa lahat. Huwag muna po kayo bibitiw. Uh, bagong lahat, maraming salamat sa ating mga resource persons at salamat din sa mga katanungan ng audience. Makakatulong ito lalo na sa Nayang Pilipino na pinag-iisipan kung paano ibabahagi sa publiko ang kanilang permanent collection. So gusto muna namin sanang ibahagi itong call for digital content or rhizomatic interventions ng Nayang Pilipino. Makikita ang guidelines dyan sa link sa poster na nakapaskil sa aming page, yung link na nakikita nyo ngayon na uh, sa screen nyo. So itong uh, call na ito, ano ba ito? Sa June 10, proposals pa lang naman ang hinihingi ng Nayang Pilipino. Maari itong workshop, lecture, featurette, featurette docu, advocacy campaign, storytelling o iba't ibang uri ng pagtatanghal. Meron lang tayong mga tema na susundin na nakasulat dyan at malawak naman ang bawat isa. Uh, let me just expound on this. No? So yung new solidarities under crisis, siguro magandang tanungin, Paano nagbagong ideya ng ating komunidad ngayong may COVID-19? Ano ang mga bagong uri ng pakikiramay at pakikipagkapwa na nabuo? Paano ba nananaig ang lakas at ideya ng bayan kahit na may krisis? So, maaaring katanungan yun. Akong ginagawa ang inyong proposal. No? Uh, yung saving our sites for ecosystem and human well-being, meron bang mga likas na yaman sa inyong lugar? Paano ito pahahalagahan ng komunidad? Meron bang inter na ma maaaring maibahagi na interaksyon ng tao at kalikasan na maaaring practice na makakabuti sa komunidad. Yung civic formation for nation building, ano ba ang civic formation and creative agency? Paano ba maging makabayan? Paano magpaka-Filipino? Ano ang mga lokal na kaalamang makakatulong sa bayan? Sustaining the nayon, ano ang mga kaugalian sa komunidad? Mga taal na kaalaman na patuloy na nananatili at nagpapatatag sa komunidad. Yung taking stock of our cultural assets, ano ba ang ating mga sagisag kultura? Ano ba ang pamana sa ating lugar? Ano ang kahalagahan ng mga cultural bearers? Mga tradisyon sa paglikha, awit, dula, mga kaalamang hinubog ng panahon at ng bayan. Yung biodiversity conservation advocacy, meron ba kayong maibabahagi tungkol sa Las Piñas, Paranaque, Critical Habitat and Ecotourism Area o yung tinatawag na La Papachea? Tandaan na hindi, lamang, hindi lang naman sa paggamit ng echo bag at bamboo tumbler na susukat ang pagiging makakalikasan, di ba? Baka meron kayong maibabahagi tungkol sa kahalagahan ng urban forests, biocultural heritage, urban rewilding, at mas malawak na marine corridor. Maraming salamat. Tandaan sa June 10, mag-email ng proposals ang atingnayon at gmail.com. Back to you, Tasha and Kate. Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Laya. Yeah, yeah. Guys, please send your proposals. Yes. Actually, uh, before we end, 
Uh, gusto ko lang ulit magpasalamat kay Dr. Stephen Acabado, kay Ms. Mylene Lacing, kay Ms. Linnell De Castro, and Ms. Ensor Taj Vitales. And if, uh, again, sabi nga ni Tasha, kung gusto niyong makipag-interact din doon sa mga nagtatanong, please look into the Facebook page of Nine Filipino Foundation uh, so that we can continue on this interaction uh, afterwards. Actually, I just want to close sa isa sa mga questions ng isa sa ating viewers and this is something that we can all ponder on. Sabi ni Susan Petilia, do you believe uh, what Laura Jane Smith said that heritage is not existing but is defined by people today? Heritage. So maganda siyang uh, pagninilay-nilay kung kanino nga ba ang heritage natin. Okay, so with that, maraming salamat ulit sa lahat ng uh, Sumama dito sa umpukan and we hope to see you again in the next sessions of Nine Filipino Foundation. Magandang Thanks tanghali. everybody. Happy lunch. And dinner for Boboy. Thank you very yeah. much for the invite. I learned so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Lenny. Thanks.